Good morning, everyone. Welcome to you that are in-house today, and those of you who are joining us online, a welcome to you. 23 years ago, I was an RCMP chaplain as part of my pastoral ministry work in southwest Nova Scotia, and uh, probably all of you remember, if you're old enough, uh, the flight that went down, Flight 111 that went down off Peggy's Cove. Well, it was my difficult duty to be there at Peggy's Cove on the rocks three days after that flight went down when 250 people gathered, families of the, those on the plane. Now, I've been with a grieving family or a few over the years or extended family, but 250 in one place just having suffered a tragedy. And so for that reason, the number 229 has been forever engraved in my mind. That's how many were on that flight that lost their lives that day. But you know what? Because of this week, there's another number in my head. And when I say it, I know it's in yours too. And the number is 215. And I think we could all say we've been saddened and we've been shocked. We've been dismayed at the report coming out of British Columbia about the 215 graves of the indigenous uh, children buried there. And of course, the details aren't out yet. But I want us to, can we do this? Let's take a moment of silence, and then I want to pray uh, for us all. Let's just, as we remember and pay our respects. Father, today we pray for the families and the relatives of the victims. Oh God, breathe your peace, your comfort to those, I pray, who, who grieve the most. I pray for appropriate action by those, our politicians, those who are in charge of responding. May the action be appropriate. May we find the path of justice, I pray. Father, my prayer this morning goes further than that. My prayer is for me and for these, my people, and those with us online today. Father, look deep within each one of us and ask, let us ask and open our hearts before you to ask, is there any root of racism or prejudice that lurks in us? I pray if so, you'd reveal it and that we'd be willing to confess it and we'd allow you to root it out. Because truly, if there's going to be a change, then the ingrained racism and prejudice must disappear from all of us. And I don't think that's a work that humans can do. I don't think that's a work that education can do, it can help, but that's a work of your Holy Spirit. So Father, we ask for your help for all of us during these days, we pray in Jesus' strong name. And God's people said, amen. Our sermon scripture today is found halfway through the Sermon on the Mount. First book of the New Testament, Matthew, chapter 6. Sermon on the Mount is chapters 5, 6, and 7. Chapter 6, verse 19. 
And this section in the New Living Translation, the New Living Translation, those who put the title on it, put this title on this section of scripture, teaching about money and possessions. Here's what it reads. Don't store up treasures here on earth where they can be eaten by moths and get rusty and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where they will never become moth-eaten or rusty and where they will be safe from thieves. Wherever your treasure is, there your heart and thoughts will also be. No one can serve two masters for you will hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So don't worry about having enough food or drink or clothing. Why be like the pagans who are deeply, so deeply concerned about these things? Your heavenly Father already knows your needs and he will give you all you need from day to day if you will live for him and make the kingdom of God your primary concern. You know that people do dumb things for money. A Newark woman reported her car as being stolen, and when she was reporting it to the officer, she mentioned that she left her phone in her car. So the policeman who took the report called the phone number, and a guy answered, and he said, he was thinking, and he said, I read the ad in the newspaper, and I would like to buy your car. And they arranged to meet, and the thief actually showed up with the car and was arrested. Dumb. Two men tried to pull the front off an ATM machine by running a chain from the bunker, from the bumper of their pickup truck to the front of the ATM machine, and then instead of pulling the front off the panel of the ATM, they pulled the bumper off the truck. That alarmed them, so they drove off, leaving the bumper chained to the ATM still and the license plate on the bumper, and within an hour, the police showed up and arrested them. Dumb and dumber, I guess you could say. A police officer had a perfect hiding place for watching for speeders, so he thought. But as the cars went by, an hour turned into two, and no one, not one car, was over the limit. And so he went looking for the problem, and he found a 10-year-old boy standing on the side of the road with a huge sign, painted, hand-painted, which said, Radar Trap Ahead. He did a little more investigative work, and that led the officer to the boy's accomplice. He was 100 yards beyond the radar trap with a sign and a pail at his feet reading tips. And a lot of change ended up in his pail. That's smart. Well, I've never stolen a car. I've never robbed an ATM machine. But I've done a few dumb things in my life with my money, which I will not recount to you at this time. But I will tell you this. I've done some smart things with my money, too. And the best investment, I declare to you this morning, the best investment I ever made with my money is the money that I have given to the church over the years. I got my first job at Canadian Tire when I was just 17 years of age. 
And it wasn't big money. I think I was making a little under maybe a dollar an hour. And I got envelopes from the church way back then. And when I would get my check, I would put money in the envelope. And I remember getting my receipt in the new year, 17 years of age. And the receipt said that I had given $60 to the church that year. I do remember this especially well, my father telling me how proud he was of me for doing that. So yes, this is a sermon about money, and it is a sermon about your money. And I want to talk to you about the money you give. Yeah, I do. And I want to talk to you about the money that you invest in kingdom work. I want to talk to you about the money in the words of the scripture we just read. It puts it like this. The money that you choose to invest in, the scripture reads, to store your treasures in heaven. And you know, I should address this subject occasionally. I've been your pastor for two years, almost, and I haven't mentioned it even once. Well, here it is. Did you know that Jesus talked much about money? 16 of the 38 parables that Jesus told were concerned with our money and our possessions. Isn't that interesting? In the Gospels, an amazing one out of 10 verses has to do with our money and possessions. 288 verses and all deal with the subject of money. The Bible offers 500 verses on prayer and less than 500 verses on faith, but the Bible has more than 2,000 verses on money and possessions. So obviously God is interested in money. And more than that, the Father is interested in our money. And he's mostly interested, though, in our attitude towards our money. How's your attitude towards money? A man was out driving his new Lexus, and he, he went off the road, and he was thrown clear and sitting on the bank unharmed, as amazing as it seemed to him, and he watched as his new Lexus rolled down the bank and into the river, and he sat there weeping, oh, my new Lexus, my new Lexus. Another drive, driver stopped and, and was listening to this man bemoan the loss of his car, and he said, hey, man, are you nuts? Never mind your car, you're bleeding, and look, your arm is missing. And the man looks down at where his arm was and says, Oh no, my Rolex is gone too. <laughs> What's your attitude towards your money? Well, hear me. Whether we have little or much, come on, we're all interested in our money and, and where and when and how we spend it and invest it. So this is a sermon more about your attitude, not just doing and responding and giving out of duty or pressure because the pastor preached on it, okay? So let me ask you this question. Do you have a, a kingdom investor's attitude? That's what I want to know. You remember the book, Rick Warren's book from about 19 years ago, The Purpose Driven Life? Many believers read that. If you're old enough to read then, you probably read it. Well, when it was published, Rick Warren wrote these words about that whole thing. He says, all of a sudden, when the book sold 15 million copies, it made me instantly very wealthy. So I began to ask God what he wanted me to do with this money. 
And he says, first, in spite of all the money coming in, we decided we would not change our lifestyle one bit. We made no major purposes, purchases. He says, second, about midway through last year, he said, I stopped taking a salary from the church. Third, he said, we set up foundations to fund an initiative we call the Peace Plan, to plant churches, equip leaders, assist the poor, care for the sick, and educate the next generation. And he said, fourth, I added up all that the church had paid me over the 24 years that I had been their pastor, and I gave it all back. It was liberating, he said, to be able to serve God for free. Now, maybe as you hear Rick Warren's report, you can't quite relate to the having too much money problem. I don't expect you can. I can't. But what about his attitude? Can you relate to that? Can you? Well, I want to talk to you this morning about how a kingdom investor's attitude develops. And there are three steps to it. So here's step one to developing a kingdom investor's attitude. And it's simply this. It's on the screen before you. I want to give. I want to give. It's not I, I should give or I have to give, but I want to. And we see this way back in the very first book of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 14. It's an incident in the life of Abraham. He had just conquered several pagan kings, and out of gratitude to God, he gave a tenth of the loot, the spoils of war, to Melchizedek, the priest of the God Most High. And I take you to Genesis 14, and here's what it reads. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then we find this verse. And Abram gave a tenth of everything. Now, what's interesting about that is this. Abe didn't have to give Melchizedek anything. No one told Abram, you've got to give this up now. You've got to give 10%. This is 4,600 years ago. This, is, this was long before centuries, before Moses ever went to the top of Mount Sinai and received the law. No guidelines had been established at this point about giving. So the question... It begs the question, then why did, Ab why did Abram do that? Why did he give? Isn't the answer obvious? He just, he just felt out of gratitude, I, I want to give. Which raises the question, well, why 10%, I wonder? And I wonder if it isn't just the, the math is so simple. We have 10 fingers, one finger. If you make $522, then he could give 50 Two of that. It's simple math. But I want to give something is where every one of us, every one of us believers begin. The most familiar verse in all of the Bible goes like this. For God so loved the world, you know the rest of it. He, what's the next word? He gave. And I suggest to you that when we experience the love of God, the natural response, or maybe I should say the supernatural response, is that I want, I've received God's grace, I've received his forgiveness, I've received his peace, his joy, his eternal life. I want to give back. 
Many years ago, John Wanamaker, the great Christian merchant of Philadelphia, made a trip to China for the purpose to determine how well his, the money he had given to missions was being used. And while he was there, he came across an old man plowing his field with a crude type of plow. And, and the plow was pulled by an ox and a young man. And so Wanamaker wanted an explanation of why this was so. And he was told that, that the chapel needed a spire on the top of it so that it would be visible for miles around for the people who walked, and they all walked, to get to church, to the chapel, could see the spire in the distance. And they tried to raise the money for it, and the money was not enough. And the son said to the father, let us sell one of the oxen, and I will take the yoke of the ox we sell. If you love, you give, and you know that. If you claim this church as your church, like Abraham, of course you do. You think, I want to give something. That's step one. Now, unlike Abraham, you may have no percentage in mind, but the point I'm making is this investor's attitude that develops in every child of God begins with, I want to give something. Well, here's step two. Then the step two of the kingdom investor's attitude is simply this, I want to tithe. Now, we've just seen that Abraham commenced this practice under no command to do so. And then we notice Jacob continued it. Jacob's his grandson. In Genesis 28, the scripture records that Jacob Jacob woke up from a dream where God had promised him land and descendants and declared, all, speaking to the father, he said, all that you give me, I'm going to give you back 10%. I'm going to give you back a tenth. So Abraham commenced it, and then Jacob continued it, and then we come to Moses. He's the one that went to the top of the mountain. Moses commanded it of the children of Israel. We read from Leviticus 27, a tithe of everything belongs to the Lord. These are the commands that the Lord gave Moses on Mount Sinai. And then we come down to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, and we see here that Malachi confirmed it when he writes this, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Next thing I'd have you notice is that Jesus commended it. Not commanded it, but he commended it. In a confrontation with the ever tenacious Pharisees, Jesus spoke these words. He said to them, you, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter. That's tithing. He's saying, he, so he's affirming the fact that they've been doing that without neglecting the former. Jesus is saying here in plain words, you were right to have tithe. It is an important matter, but it's not the most important matter. He commended it. So Moses commenced it. Jacob continued it. Moses commanded it. Malachi confirmed it. Jesus commended it. And cross pointers practice it. 
if there were not tithers as part of Cross Point Church, Cross Point Church doors would not be open. And we understand that. We teach it here at Cross Point Church. I'm teaching it this morning. But we do not demand it. We want you to want to give. You see, that's step one on this whole kingdom investor attitude thing. Step two, I want to tithe, I believe is the normal attitude for committed Christ followers. It's the normal attitude for Christ followers, but it's not yet the practice for some. Some believers, and maybe those particularly young in the faith, have trouble translating wanting to into actually doing. Well, here's some advice for someone who's actually been there. I struggled with this practice in my 20s and in my 30s because I would take my money and I, would, I have a mortgage and I have groceries to buy and I have two children to clothe and, and I have a car and all this rest and I would come down and look at what remains and I was late in my 30s before I made the decision that I need to take it off the top. Take it off the top before I do anything else. For those of you that might be struggling with this biblical practice, here's my suggesting. suggestion. Start where you can. If you can give 1%, consistently give the one, but make a plan. God honoring me, hear me, God honoring me, I will raise my 1% in a month or whatever your plan is. In two months, I will go to 2%. In four months, I will go to 3%. God honoring me, I have a plan to one day reach the tithe. And I promise you, God will honor you. Let me just mention two myths. I've heard these all through the years. These are both myths about giving. Here's the first one. The more you make, the easier it is to tithe. People with a lot of money have no problem with the tithing thing. It's not true. I haven't experienced that over all of the years. If a youth starts with his lawn mowing money uh, or babysitting money and it becomes a habit, that's such a natural and easy way to start. The more you make, the easier it is? Don't think so. Years ago, a man who frequented the doors of my church several times a year, we were in this conversation. He started it. Here's what he said. I made $250,000 last year. And if you think I'm going to give your church $25,000, you're nuts. Well, that pretty much ended the conversation. I didn't try to, I didn't try to argue with him. All, obviously, he did not have a kingdom investor's mindset. Here's the second, the first myth then. The more you make, the easier it is to tithe. No, not true. Here's the second myth. Tithing is a financial matter, not a spiritual matter. No, which is precisely why Jesus spoke often about money and possessions. It's a spiritual matter. Jesus said it plainly when he said these words. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The truth is, for us all, everyone puts their money where their heart is. Pastor Adrian Rogers, a Southern Baptist pastor from the southern part of the United States who died just a few years ago, in one of his books said this, a faith that hasn't reached your wallet probably hasn't reached your heart. I think he's right. So here is how a kingdom investor's attitude develops. We've looked at step one. I want to give. I want to give something. 
Then step two is, I want to give 10%, and I'll either start or I'm going to work towards it. Here's step three, and the last step of a kingdom investor's attitude. Here it is. I want to give beyond, beyond the 10%. The tithe, it's the attitude that says, the tithe is the least I can do. And and I believe this because I've experienced it in my own life. As a believer's attitude progresses up these three steps, giving becomes less and less a duty and an obligation and more and more a delight and an expression of gratitude to God as part of our worship. The tithe is the least I can do is spoken by someone who thinks like this. The verses in front of you. Psalm 24, verse 1 reads, The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. You see, that's the mentality that says, Well, God owns it all anyway. I'm just his steward. I'm the caretaker of all that he has given to me. I'm looking after his money anyway. King David experienced that, one of the most famous kings of the Old Testament. After raising money to build the temple, he went after his people to bring in their gold, and they'd melt everything down to build the temple. He watched his people give, and here's what he said. It's in 1 Chronicles 29 and verse 14. But who am I, and who are my people, that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything, he says, comes from your hand, from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. This level goes beyond tithe as the Lord enables, and he will. The third step is always from a grateful heart, always from a cheerful giver. It's the kind of thinking that God owns it all. Do you believe that God owns it all? This, this is just a story, as you'll soon see. A scientist approached God and said, Listen, we've decided we no longer need you. Nowadays, we can clone people and we can translate heart, uh, transplant hearts and we can do all kinds of things that were one time considered miraculous. And the story goes, God heard him out and then said to the man, all right, to see whether you still need me or not, why don't we just have a man-making contest? The scientist replied, okay then, great. And then God said, now we're going to do this just like I did back in the old days with Adam. That's fine, replied the scientist. And the scientist bent down to scoop up a handful of dirt, at which time God said, whoa there, hold on, not so fast, pal, get your own dirt. You see, it's all his. It's all his. And when we reach step three, hear me now, hear me on this. When we reach step three giving, I want to give beyond the gates of heaven open. I could stand here the next 10 minutes, not going to, and you don't want to hear it all, of the ways that God has blessed me as I personally have progressed in this area of developing a kingdom investor's attitude. I stood at the, on the steps as the first service people exited. And one of the men 
for, uh, about seven years, a cross pointer was telling me, just making a short list of all the ways that God had, he said, I struggled through my 20s and 30s with this whole business. And since then, the way God has honored me and blessed me, even in financial ways, and he, amazing. One more story. This comes from my experience as pastor of Corbett Avenue, Corbett Avenue Wesleyan Church, just down the road a few kilometers. We had announced a great day of giving. We needed to buy a property that was adjacent to the church property. We didn't have the money. It would have cost about six times what the weekly giving was. So I went after the people like this, and I said to them, if we're going to have a great day of giving and raise it all in one day, all of us, me and you, need to think in terms of giving six times what we normally give in one week. That's about the total of what it would be. And I put that out there, and I received this note. She writes, I had decided before the great day of giving that I wanted to give six times our normal amount, as you had mentioned that six times was needed. Though I was not sure how we were going to make it happen, my husband and I had discussed it a few times, and we couldn't agree on the amount. The night before the great day of giving, we still hadn't come to any agreement. And then she starts a new paragraph and says, While attending a festival a while back, I found a piece of art that I fell in love with. And I was so excited about that that my husband couldn't help but agree to buy it for me. So we, we met with the artist, we agreed on a price, and we planned to meet her the next day to finalize what the deal would cost us. And it would be exactly six times the amount I normally give to Corbett. The next morning while filling out the offering envelope before leaving the house, it occurred to me that I was going to spend six times our weekly offering on a painting, but not, was not willing to give that same amount to the church. I decided right there that I could do without another painting, and I wrote the check to Corbett Avenue instead of the artist. It felt wonderful how easy it was to give up a thing and invest in God's kingdom. That is a kingdom investor's attitude. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. I opened with it. I closed with it. He, God, will give you all you need from day to day if you love him and make the kingdom of God your primary concern. Let's pray. Father, if I were to begin to list the benefits that I have received from you over a lifetime, we would be here through the afternoon and the evening. Father, you've been so gracious to me. Your grace has always been there. Your love, your favor. You've always been faithful, even when I haven't been. And Father, we've been singing about that this morning. What a great God you are. Father, would you develop in all of us this kingdom investor's attitude? Let this, let this not be one more great saying from the Sermon on the Mount, which we agree with in principle, making the kingdom of God our primary concern. Let it be a practical application that we apply every day in our lives in every area of our lives. Yes, 
including our finances, making the kingdom of God our primary concern. Develop in me, develop in each one of us a kingdom investor's attitude. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.